Dear Kyle, I've lived long enough to see nearly everything. I'm further along the road of life than you are. I've been hurt more. I've tossed and turned through more sleepless nights. I've experienced more victories and sadly, more defeats. There are so many things I want to tell you. It's hard to know where to start. Life can be so beautiful and at the same time, so ugly. Kyle, I've walked in your shoes. I know what you're facing and what you will face. I know this like no other person in your life. I want to give you four pieces of advice. Advice that if heeded will sustain you in life. First, never waste a second wishing you were somewhere else in life. Failure to steward your time. That's what it's called. Learn to embrace the present and not waste the present. Hold that hug with your wife a little longer. Laugh with your children a little louder. Kyle, your days will fly by. Learn to cherish every second of them. Learn to embrace the unknown and trust the one who knows. Secondly, learn to give yourself grace. I know you're driven. That's a good thing. But a good thing can become a bad thing when you make it an ultimate thing. You will make mistakes. You will stumble. You will fall. And you will grow as a result. You don't have to be perfect. Perfection is an illusion. It's Satan whispering in your ear that you are the Messiah. You can do it. Kyle, you can't. But Jesus can. Jesus did. Thirdly, very little of what you've accomplished has anything to do with you. You will spend some years in ministry thinking that you have accomplished things. Like the time you and your father were pushing the vehicle and you told him to stop because he was getting in your way. You soon found out that you were not moving the vehicle at all. Ministry will be like that. There will be times when you think you are moving the church forward. You're not. It's your heavenly father. Fourthly, you're going to make it. Repeat that to yourself when you're faltering. You're going to make it. You're going to get through this, through everything. You've trusted Christ with your soul. You can trust him with this hard time. Kyle, never stop trusting. Things I wish I knew 10 years ago. I read something written by Jack Nicholas this week, the golfer. He wrote a letter to his 10-year-old self. He wrote, 10-year-old Jack, I know you love dad. He's your best friend, your mentor, your hero. You do everything with him. He teaches you, to, he, he teaches you how to shoot a free throw, hit a curveball, throw a tight spiral. You've been going to Buckeye football games with him in Columbus since you were six. And guess what? You won't miss one until you're 20. Jack goes on to say to his younger self, you will be playing volleyball and your dad will have an injury. You will have ingrained into your mind his friends carrying him into the house. He will be told that he can't do things he used to do. He will have to pick a new sport, something less taxing on his body. He'll choose golf. Ten-year-old Jack, I know you've never heard of golf, but you need to tug on your dad's pant leg and beg to go with him. The game will seem foreign to you at first and at times boring, but one day after two holes, your dad will get tired and he will need a break. And it's at that moment that you will walk over, pick up the club, and take a swing. Jack, 
Never stop swinging. Jack wrote this letter to his younger self. It inspired me to write a letter to my younger self. That's actually the letter that I read to you. I entitled it, Dear Kyle, but I could have entitled it, Dear Younger Me. I would have lived differently if I knew then what I know now. I wish I could have told my younger self that your endless pursuits in the far country will never satisfy. They will leave you empty. And it's just by God's mere grace that your life will not turn out tragically different. (laughs) I would have told my younger self not to watch the UNC Villanova championship game. Because that last shot will crush you. (laughs) I I would have told the younger me, Kyle, don't dare get frosted tips. You'll look like an idiot. (laughs) You know, in a sense, Ecclesiastes is Solomon's letter to his younger self. He doesn't begin the letter by saying, dear younger me. But he does begin the letter by preaching to himself. He even calls himself the preacher. Koheleth in the Hebrew. That's what this book is. Older, wiser Solomon looking back on his life, writing a letter to his younger self. God happened to touch the letter, inspire the letter, preserve the letter, and include the letter in the canon of Scripture. Now, one of the things that makes this letter so difficult to preach through verse by verse is that the older, wiser Solomon at times takes on the mindset of his younger, dumber self. My Old Testament prof in my doctoral program said that Ecclesiastes is the hardest book to preach because you don't always know if it's the older Solomon speaking Or if it's the younger Solomon speaking. And there are times when the older Solomon voices the thoughts and opinions of the younger Solomon. In order to eventually show you that the younger Solomon was wrong. He was bankrupt. Let me just give you an illustration of of how difficult this book is to interpret. I'll have 20 resources that I will consult on each passage. The resources consist of commentaries, theologians, pastors... Of the 20, there may be 11 who say that the current text is Christian truth and should be preached that way. In other words, it's the older Solomon speaking. The remaining nine resources may say that Solomon is in a pit of despair and he's spewing bitterness and theology that isn't consistent with the rest of Scripture. In other words, it's younger Solomon speaking. It's an accurate account of his inaccurate view of life. This makes for quite a fun time in the study. In order to fully understand the book, you really have to read the entire thing through the lens of the last two verses. There it shows the older repentant Solomon saying, my younger self really missed it. The last two verses of the book is his repentance. And those verses give you the context for the whole book. Now I've chosen not to end every sermon in the series the same way taking you to the end of the book. But you always need to keep in mind the end as you walk through it. So let's take a look at Solomon's letter to his younger self. He gives four pieces of advice that he wished his younger self knew. The first piece of advice is this. Life isn't fair and karma is a lie. We're about to read something that Solomon has said for the 11th time. Verse 15. In my vain life. The thought here is is quickly passing. Fleeting life. In my fleeting life I have seen everything. 
Notice the use of the personal pronoun. You find a heavy use of the personal pronoun throughout the chapter. Solomon's highlighting his personal experience. He continues, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, karma is a lie. Karma says what goes around comes around. Karma teaches you to do good things and good things will happen to you. You do bad things and bad things will happen to you. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Karma has no menu. You get served what you deserve. You get what you give. It's the yin and the yang of life. Now Christians say they don't believe in karma. But they live like they do. Something bad happens to a bad person and we say, He had it coming. Verse 15 disproves karma. But it also seems to contradict other scriptures. For instance, God said in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33, You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live long in the land that you possess. God promised that those who kept the law would prolong their lives. But that is not what we find in our text. Even in the Ten Commandments, God said, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long. Paul reiterated that in Ephesians chapter 6. Obey your parents that you may live long. Solomon even seems to contradict himself. Solomon says here in this verse that there's a righteous man who dies early. There's a wicked man who lives long. But over in Proverbs chapter 10 verse 27, Solomon says the opposite. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. So what's going on here? Solomon is seeing people live righteously but dying early. Even dying because they are righteous. And we know that this is not uncommon in scripture. Righteous Abel died early. The good man, Naboth, was killed. Stephen was cut down in the prime of his life. Sometimes God's people... Die young. What a contradiction. And contradictions are hard for pastors. This is why one commentator said, the temptation will be great to skip this text. And half of the guys I typically read on a text, they did. (laughs) This is one of the kinds of texts that causes pastors to pace in their study and consider going into farming. Change of of pace. But we're not going to skip this text. We're going to grip this text. It's an extremely relevant passage that deals with perplexing questions. Why do good people die young? Why do evil people live long? As a church, we must grapple with this. Here's the explanation. Ecclesiastes offers the exceptions to the rules. Ecclesiastes offers the exceptions to the rules. Let's go back to elementary school. Remember learning all those spelling rules and you're making a lot of progress. You're making hundreds on the test and things are clicking. And then comes the day when the teacher tells us that there are exceptions to the rules. I before E except after... You passed second grade. I'm (laughs) impressed. Ecclesiastes is your teacher and it offers you the the exceptions... To the rules. And certain personalities may struggle with the book, and other personalities may really enjoy it. For instance, you've heard of the three B's of classical music Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. 
Well, Bach's favorite book of the Bible was Ecclesiastes. Bach's favorite chapter of the Bible was Ecclesiastes chapter 7. They actually discovered the, what they call the Bach Bible, and in it, chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes has more markings than any other chapter. You, like Bach before you, need to lean into the fact that life isn't fair. Life looks like the exact opposite of what Solomon expected in a world governed by a good God. Sometimes things are not the way they're supposed to be. We all know examples in our day. A young mother with three littles diagnosed with cancer. A child dying in a car wreck. A young Christian boy being bullied at school. Criminals getting off the hook and living a long, full life. Dear Karma, I have a list of people you've missed. If seeing the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper bothers you, you can identify with the author because it bothers him too. Solomon cries out with the psalmist in Psalm 73. Behold, these are wicked and they're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Ecclesiastes forces us to look at the world as it is. To see up close the harsh realities of a fallen world. Let me apply this. Living a holy life is not an insurance against dying young. Should you still live a holy life? Yes. One, because you will be rewarded for your faithfulness in eternity. Two, because you want to live a righteous life. At conversion, God placed in you a thirst for righteousness. God chose something better than karma for you. He chose mercy. We don't read Ecclesiastes by itself. We read it in light of the whole story. We don't separate this letter from all the other letters. We read all the letters together. With Christ, you do live long. In fact, you live forever. You never die. Solomon continues his letter to his younger self and he gives the second piece of advice. He says this. There are two ways to be lost and only one way to be saved. Notice verse 16. Be not overly righteous. Let, let's stop there. In other words, if the good die young, then there's no reason to try to be good. Verse 17. Be not overly wicked. In verse 15, Solomon introduces two categories, righteous and wicked. In verse 16 and 17, he introduces two more categories, overly righteous and overly wicked. Now let's compare the, the first two. There is a difference between righteous in verse 15 and overly righteous in verse 16. The adjective is important. The righteous obey the Bible, the overly righteous add to the Bible. And older Solomon says to younger Solomon, don't be a religious fanatic. Adding things to the Bible like the Pharisees did. Making, making gospel issues out of things that aren't gospel issues. Always pompous with their sanctimonious showmanship. Younger Solomon, don't be so arrogant as to try to prolong your days by your good work. 
God's already set the beginning and end of your days. You may refer to someone like this as self-righteous or super-righteous. They have an obsession with establishing their own righteousness. Younger Solomon, don't be an Old Testament version of a Pharisee. Tim Keller, I call him New York City's Yoda. He says this, Pharisees repent of their wrongdoing, but they don't repent of the reasons for their right doing, which is just as bad. Now that's comparing righteousness and overly righteous. Now compare wicked in verse 15 with overly wicked in verse 17. Older Solomon is not saying it's okay to be a little wicked. That there are some acceptable forms of iniquity. He condemns both wickedness and overly wickedness. Older, wiser Solomon then says to his younger self, you need to reach out and grab something. Verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from, notice this word, both of them. Now, some scholars say that this is older Solomon talking as younger Solomon, and he's pushing a third option, a third way of salvation, a middle ground, a middle way. Uh, Don't be a good person, don't be a bad person, just be in the middle, and you'll be good, you'll be saved. I don't think that's what's happening here. We are taking verse 18 as positive, Because we are running it through the grid of the fear of the Lord found in the last two verses of the book. Every time we see fear of the Lord, it's coming from the older, wiser Solomon. So here's the point. Younger Solomon, come out from both extremes. Self-righteousness and unrighteousness. Come out from both extremes. Self-righteousness and unrighteousness. So so you have religious people, and then you have irreligious people. non You have non-religious people. Religious people and irreligious people. Now, what did Jesus say to the overly religious people? Well, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These ought you to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He said, you righteous, you overly righteous, you're children of hell. What did Jesus say to the irreligious? He said that to the religious. What did he say to the irreligious? But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come home will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then he will say, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There are two ways to be lost, religiously and irreligiously. And there's only one way to be saved. That's repentance. If you know the story of the prodigal son, it's, uh, you could say that Solomon is preaching here against the younger brother type and the older brother type. They're both lost and on their way to hell. People want to divide the world into good guys and bad guys, but Jesus says no. There are three ways. There's bad guys, those who think they're good, and repentant guys. Younger Solomon, younger me, be a repentant guy. So Solomon moves on now to his 
third piece of advice in his letter to his younger self. And he says this. Wisdom will make your life easier, but it can't make you sinless. Wisdom will make your life easier, but it can't make you sinless. Verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Solomon imagines here a city governed by a council of ten rulers. A full, complete number of rulers. Uh, the citizens are protected, they are secured, they are cared for, they are watched over by the rulers. In the same way, wisdom does that for your life. Uh, wisdom will protect you. Wisdom will watch over you. Wisdom will care for you. Younger Solomon, you will tug at the pant leg of a lot of things. Make sure you tug at the pant leg of wisdom. You will not need wisdom less and less. You will need wisdom more and more. You will be faced with a time when the Lord says, I'll give you anything you ask. What do you want? You say wisdom, Solomon. Just keep swinging for wisdom. Then he says, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, does that not sound like a New Testament verse to you? Does that not sound like Romans chapter 3? As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Apparently, Bach wasn't the only man to mark up Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The apostle Paul did as well. Bach loved Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and apparently the apostle Paul loved Ecclesiastes chapter 7 as well. And the Greek version of the Old Testament, these are identical phrases. None is righteous, no, not one. He is quoting older, wiser Solomon. Young Solomon, you can have all the wisdom the world has to offer. You can, you can, God can load you up with wisdom, but that doesn't forgive sins. Wisdom will give you the ability to make wise choices, but it can't give you a clean heart. You must understand, younger Solomon, the pervasiveness of sin. And then notice 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Solomon says, younger me, you're going to have to learn not to be paralyzed by painful criticism. Not everyone is going to like you. Not everyone is going to say behind your back what they say in front of your face. And this is not a good lesson, church, for all of us. How do you respond when you discover that you're the butt of the joke? When someone argues with you on social media, do you take it to heart? Are you destroyed by what people say of you? Or have you learned the art of responding in grace? Riken, one of the commentators I read this week, gave an example of how to respond in grace. He said, he didn't insult me at all. In fact, he was talking about another man. The man he thought I was. By the way, don't search out everyone's opinion of you. It doesn't matter if they like you. You live before the approval of one. And his approval is the only thing that matters. Don't throw yourself a pity party when you find out someone spoke poorly of you. Don't try to defend yourself. Let God fight for you. Let that moment, that time, be an opportunity in which you can identify with Jesus. 
Younger Solomon, you, you, you will lead many people. You can't please them all. Like the leader of any country, half of its people will dislike you. Don't become too sensitive. Don't let someone's words ruin your day, break your heart, stomp your soul, or block out your sunshine. This is a lesson you're going to need, younger Solomon. And then 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. (laughs) Don't forget, young Solomon, you are a people of unclean lips as well. You've said some wounding things. You've said some hateful things. You've said some unbecoming things behind someone's back. We all fail to meet God's standard of perfect speech. Notice what Solomon's doing here. Solomon is longing for Jesus. Older Solomon is writing to younger Solomon, his younger self, and he's saying, we need a sinless one, but there isn't one on the earth. We need one with pure lips, but all we have is people with unclean lips. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? The last three words, find it out, uh, that's an eightfold repetition. Find it out throughout the passage. Older Solomon is saying, I've searched high and low for wisdom and I found, a, I found a lot of it. I found a great deal of wisdom. But there's still more to find. So, um, someone who lived at the same time as Bach was a, a man by the name of Sir Isaac Newton. He formulated the, the laws of gravity. He discovered that white light is actually made up of all the colors of the rainbow. Uh, you know his three laws of motion that sends rockets into space. He was a a physicist, a mathematician, and a philosopher. He was brilliant. He was, a, he was a wise man. Historians say that Newton was a creationist and a committed believer. But, but in his latter, latter years, he said something very similar to Solomon. He said this, I have only discovered the edges of God's ways. There is a great ocean of knowledge, and I have but been paddling in the shallows. Solomon went deep, very deep in his study, but he could never plunge the depths of wisdom. And his wisdom made him humble, not haughty. John Calvin called this learned ignorance. Learned ignorance. Young Solomon, you need it. Verse 26, And I found something more bitter than death. This is interesting. I want to know what's more bitter than death. Death seems pretty bitter to me. I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Older, wiser Solomon tells his younger self, stay away from women who will ensnare you and trap you. When you're with her, you will think, man, this is really living. But actually, it's really not. Solomon, be like Joseph and run from her. When she tries to seduce you, don't look at her lips, look at her hands. She's holding cuffs. It's a trap. When she makes your heart bump, look at her heart. It's a snare. You don't flirt. You flee. She has an arsenal of hunting equipment, snares, nets. That's fishing imagery. Fetters. Think of ropes that tied up Samson. Young Solomon, if you marry a child of the devil, 
you will eventually run into problems with your father-in-law. There's a bit of a transition now in the text. The preacher says, wisdom is rare and finding a wise person is not easy. He, He actually says in verse 28, you may find one wise man among a thousand, but you will not find a single wise woman among a thousand women. Now, when I read that, I thought, Solomon, why'd you do this to me? I mean, seriously, you know I preach verse by verse through the Bible. You know I can't skip this, and you're doing this to me. So let's deal with it. Is Solomon a woman hater? Is he a male chauvinist? Tremper Longman, whom I follow a lot, um, said Solomon is speaking as a misogynist here. Martin Luther considered this verse as a divine a divine ordinance toward all women. My wife, after reading what Luther said, actually went into my office and I have a statue there of, of Martin Luther and she smashed it with a hammer. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> it, it's reported that Chrysostom said on this, what is woman but a punishment that cannot be driven away? <laughs> <laughs> Man, you better not, your wives are watching your wife right now. A necessary evil, a natural temptation, a desirable calamity. This is not PC. This is not politically correct. And what a take on the verse. Well, Solomon said you can find one wise man among a thousand and no wise women among a thousand women. That would make men .10 better than women. So he's not a chauvinist. He's not complimenting anyone here. I mean, you can recognize hyperbole when you read it, right? I can't find one good person among a thousand. There's not one in a million. It's just saying wise people are hard to find. And it really all becomes clear when we realize that Solomon started out his life pursuing wisdom, and then God granted him more wisdom. Solomon married a good woman, a godly woman. They were happy. He wrote a book on marriage called Song of Solomon. It's the Hebrew book on marriage. He praised her. He treated her like a queen. He whined and dined her. He romanced her. He honored her. He cherished her. I don't know where she goes. But slowly Solomon's heart starts turning toward other women. He knew wisdom, but he no longer acts in wisdom And he began to marry many different women to form political alliances. And that's where the significance of the number 1,000 comes in. Solomon married 700 wives and he had 300 concubines. That's 1,000 ladies. Older, wiser Solomon writes a letter to his younger, dumber self. And he says, younger me, learn to love the wife of your youth. Don't be chasing after women who will end up trapping you and turning your heart away from God. His fourth and final piece of advice, let's go there. It's this. You're going to have a heart bent towards scheming. Why? Because of the fall. You're going to have a heart bent towards scheming because of the fall. Verse 29. See, this alone I found that God made man upright. Let's pause. God made man upright. That is the doctrine of original righteousness. 
when Solomon uses the word man, it's literally the word Adam, the person Adam in the Hebrew. God made Adam perfect in the beginning, and Adam was our spiritual head. He rep- represented for us sinless humanity. This verse rejects the charge that God is responsible for evil in this world. No, the verse continues. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now this echoes back to the garden. God made humans straightforward, but they devised many sinful schemes. John Calvin compared Adam to the root that goes rotten, and then it ruins the whole tree. Through Adam's scheme, his sin, the whole family tree of humanity is now poisoned with sin. Or as C.S. Lewis said, you come from Lord Adam and Lady Eve, and that's a great privilege, but that is also great pain. Solomon introduces to us in this verse not only the doctrine of original righteousness, but also the doctrine of original sin. Now we are all schemers having gone astray, having gone our own way. Your heart is an inexhaustible fountain of sin. Now, this passage does not contain a promise of Christ or a type of Christ. So how are we going to get to Christ from this Old Testament text? Well, older, wiser Solomon had a better view than younger, dumber Solomon. But even older, wiser Solomon did not have a complete view. He saw creation original righteousness. He saw the fall, original sin, but he doesn't seem to see redemption or new creation. When you're describing the storyline of the Bible, you can do it in four movements. Uh, Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Creation, God made it good. The fall, we broke it bad. Redemption, Jesus came to be our good New creation. All we will ever know is good forever. We actually have the whole Bible. We see clearer than Solomon. Now let's, uh, <clears throat> let's land this plane. Apparently, writing letters to your younger self is very common. Not just with Christians, but with non-Christians as well. There's something therapeutic about it, maybe... There are multiple books entitled Dear Younger Me, or some close form to that title. There's even a song entitled Dear Younger Me. One of the songwriters said that he didn't get really specific in the song, but he wanted to write to his younger self. It wasn't your fault when your parents split up at age three. It wasn't your fault that your dad beat you. It's really like Solomon is writing here. Dear younger me, here's how I would have lived if I knew then what I know now. Remember, I told you, I I told my younger self, I told my younger self, Kyle, never stop trusting. Nicholas told his younger self, Jack, never stop swinging. The old preacher tells his younger self, Solomon, Never stop repenting. I hope you realize that Solomon's letter to himself is really Solomon's letter to you. 
And Solomon's letter to you is really God's letter to you. God used human instruments, but it is his letter. This letter was not only God breathed at the time it was written, but it is God breathing now. God's letter to you in three words. Never stop repenting. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.